0: hope you all had a good uh, Christmas and traveling and all that, and uh, you may have Christmases still to come. We're done, we're on to the next, all right, good. So 362 days, right, start to count down, might as well leave the decorations up, but uh, we won't I guess. But I hope you had a, a good time, we uh, spent a lot of time on the road traveling and uh, seeing f- family and friends and things like that, and it was good. And um, We are finishing up our Christmas chronicle series. You can see behind me uh, today, we're looking at the future Christmas and uh, just going through the series and thinking about Christmases through the years. um, I can remember in seventh grade, uh, a family Christmas where my brother and I both got a gift that we were not expecting. And that really kind of uh, summarizes Christmas in the Bible, as we're going to see here in a second. But. You know, normally in Christmas time, there are presents under the tree, and my parents didn't like have a number uh, or amount of presents we got every year, but they just it'd be stacked with presents. And I remember this particular Christmas again, I was in seventh grade, and uh, there weren't as many presents under the tree, and I didn't understand why. I didn't know if like we were really bad that year or what was going on, but uh, my my parents were adamant that we would open a present first. So both of us would pick up a present, we had to open it together, and we had to open it first before anything else was opened. And so as we tore into it, just wondering what amazing thing this gift could hold, I ended up pulling out a fanny pack. You all remember fanny packs? If you don't know what a fanny pack is, it's basically a backpack for your waist. Um, And uh, again, I was in seventh grade, and for some reason my parents decided my fanny pack should be neon pink. And uh, it just doesn't scream, middle school boy, at that moment in time. But as we were looking at our gifts and looking at each other, thinking, what did we do wrong? Um, it was then my parents said, okay, you're going to need these. And for the next couple days, because here in a couple of days, we're going to fly out of St. Louis and go to Orlando, Florida, and we're going to spend the week at Disney World. And so I grabbed my pink fanny pack, and I was running around the house and dancing and screaming for joy. And I'm sure it's where my daughter did her dance moves. But there are, there's a picture out there somewhere, Jamie has found it at one point in time, uh, of me wearing my bright pink fanny pack with pride in the midst of Disney World. And so it's somewhere out there, but uh, you can talk to her. She's more the internet-savvy person. It was an unexpected gift, though. I mean, not just the fame fact, but the fact we were going to go to Disney World, um, and we were going to go to all the parks and spend the whole week there, and we just didn't expect that to happen. And I don't know if this year you got one of those gifts that were just an unexpected gift. It just blew you away, and you just didn't know what to say. Maybe you're overcome with emotion or whatnot, but those are incredible gifts to get, and that is, in fact, what Christmas is. If you look at the Christmas story, very few people were expecting Christmas to happen. I mean, marrying Joseph, but they kind of had some inside information about what was going on, right? Uh, the shepherds had to be told by a heavenly host out in the field about what was happening in the nearby ty- town of Bethlehem. It would appear uh, that the wise men were the only ones who had some sort of clue that there was something miraculous happening, and yet they didn't exactly know what it was for sure, and they didn't know where it was supposed to be going on, but they knew something was happening. Few expected the birth of Christ. And so as we wrap up our series on the Christmas Chronicles, our focus this morning is going to be the future Christmas. And what we're going to be looking at is the second coming of Christ and the danger it is that we can have in not living in the expectation of it happening. So we're referring to Jesus' second coming, which J.C. Ryle says, is completely different than the first. The first time he was born in a manger of Bethlehem, in lowliness and humiliation. He took the very nature of a servant and was despised and not esteemed. But he will come the second time as the king of all the earth with royal majesty. And so we're going to be looking at two different passages this morning. The first passage is in Matthew chapter 24. If you want to make your way there in scriptures, we're going to begin in verse 36 here in a second. In Matthew chapter 24, uh, we're going to look at the, the danger of not expecting the second coming of Christ, the return of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to turn our attention to a passage in Luke chapter 2. If you have your scriptures, you want to put your thumb there or finger there in which we find two individuals who are in fact expecting the Christ to be born and they praise God. So we're going to learn from them how we can live in a sense of expectation for the second coming of Christ. But let's begin in Matthew 24. We're going to start in verse 36 and we're going to read through verse 44. And the word of the Lord says, but concerning that day. An hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Verse 42, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour, that you do not expect. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this day and this time of year. I thank you for the individuals who are here in this place. I thank you that you know them by name. You know the situations going on in their life. You know their worries and their concerns. You know their joys and triumphs. Father, we come before you where nothing is hidden. You know our lives. You know the things in our lives that need to be transformed and molded more into your likeness. Father, I pray as we open up your scriptures, your spirit would open up our minds, our hearts, our ears, our eyes to see your truth. Lord, that it would be your word and your word alone that is spoken to us. So remove me from the equation, Father, just use me as an instrument of your righteousness. I pray that you alone would be glorified, that your kingdom and will would be done alone in this place. So give us a heart that is set on loving you with everything we have in this moment. Give us a mind that is set on focusing on you and you alone. And we ask you to forgive us where we may have failed you thank you for your word thank you for allowing us to be once again in your presence your holiness i thank you for what's going to happen here in the next couple of minutes as we walk through it be our shepherd and guide us and lead us to where we need to be and pray us on the name of jesus our lord and savior amen as we look in matthew chapter 24 just to get a little context of what is going on jesus's earthly ministry is coming closer to an end uh, the reason for Christmas is about to be fulfilled, as Jesus was born so that He could ultimately die for the sins of the world and be and give us eternal life when we accept Him as our Lord and Savior. With the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and His disciples have this urge to become a somewhat type of tour guide for Jesus. In verse 1, they begin pointing out to all the buildings of the temple to Jesus to let Him marvel at them. And then Jesus makes a statement that is an unexpected statement to the disciples in verse 2. He tells them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This statement would have taken the disciples by surprise, much like that fanny pack that Christmas morning took me by surprise. I did not expect a pink fanny pack for Christmas, but I have one and there's evidence of it. Jesus says that everything you see is going to be thrown down. And it's important as we walk through chapter 24 and into chapter 25 that we understand what the disciples do next. As in verse 3, they pose three questions to Jesus. Tell us when will these things be? That is concerning when will these buildings be thrown down, and what will be the sign of your coming? And at the end of the age. So there's three questions the disciples ask Jesus as after he makes this statement. The first one is concerning the buildings to which Jesus begins teaching on, late uh, and starting in verse four and running through verse twenty-eight. He speaks of a prophecy of what happens in 70 A.D. when the Roman Empire comes and lays waste the temple of the Jewish people. Then Jesus turns his attention to the second set of questions in dealing with the end of the age and his second coming. And that begins in verse 29 and runs through chapter 25 where Jesus gives illustrations, statements and parables. It's important that we understand that's what's going on here in 24 and 25, as a lot of people misinterpret this whole thing as an end-time prophecy or teaching, but that's not what Jesus is doing. He's teaching on three different things that are going to happen and trying to give His disciples understanding. He then turns His attention to His return, which is something that we are supposed to expect in verse 36, and He says, But concerning that day... And the word or phrase that day can be something we read over so easily, but it has a ton of significance concerning the Old Testament because it's a very similar phrase as the day of the Lord that we find throughout the Old Testament. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament refers to when the Lord's judgment will come upon his nation, come upon the nations and his people, and the Lord's deliverance will be for his people out of that bondage. And so Jesus is referring to that day, or the Lord's day, when God's judgment will come upon the nations and upon the people, and at the same time, God's people will be delivered from their bondage. But he says something very strange there in verse 36. He says, That day an hour no one knows, meaning no human being knows, which is important. To understand that if anybody or any group of people ever come out to say, this is when the Christ will return, we can automatically conclude these are false prophets. The Mormons are horrendous at this. They have done it numerous times throughout history and other peoples as well. No one knows, no human being has the knowledge to know when Christ will return. Jesus doesn't even just say no one. He says not even the angels of heaven know, nor the Son, but the Father only. Well, that leads to a very interesting question. How can Jesus Christ be 100% God and yet not know when He's going to come back? What is He saying? I mean, that gives it a little quandary. Was He not God in the flesh? Well, as I was looking back and studying, and I believe this is what is happening, what Jesus is saying. When Jesus became flesh... We believe He was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. I know that's 200% and it doesn't add up, but our math doesn't always equal God's math. Just start tithing and you'll figure that out. So Jesus says, no one knows except the Father, not even the Son. And what He's making a statement of is when Jesus came in the flesh, though He was 100% God at the time, He relinquished some of His godly power while He remained in the flesh. This is what, in fact, made Him human. And for us to kind of understand this, I I think the best way to understand it is God is omnipresent. When we say God is omnipresent, that means God is everywhere. He isn't just at Harvest Hill. He's at all the churches that represent His kingdom and His name. And so God is everywhere. He's all over the face of the earth. He's in China, in Japan, He's in Stratford, He's in Missouri, whatever. Jesus was God in the flesh. But when we read through the Gospels, one thing we do not see is Jesus exuberating His godly power of being everywhere. Jesus never comes to His disciples and say, Look, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Why don't you go there? I'll meet you there. And then Jesus teleports Himself to Jerusalem, though, being God in the flesh, He had the power to do so. But He relinquished. He limited Himself to the powers that He had within Him. Instead, we find Jesus going on boats and walking and riding uh, animals to certain places because that was His human flesh. We also know that God is all-knowing. Yet when we read through the Gospels, what we find Jesus doing as a teaching method is asking questions of people. To clarify, though I believe Jesus already knew the answer when he was asking, he was just trying to get the people to think, he still asks questions. We know God is all-powerful, yet we read through the Gospels and we see that Jesus becomes hungry, he becomes tired, he becomes sad, and ultimately he dies. So he relinquished some of his godly power while he was in the flesh. That doesn't make him less God. He just limited himself. This is what Philippians points out in Philippians chapter two verse six through seven. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. Jesus came as God in the flesh, but while he was in the flesh, he limited himself, he limited his powers while he was there and did not exuberate them all. This is why he says at this moment in time, not even the son knows, only the father. He's simply limiting himself at that moment. Again, if we have trouble understanding this, if you were to place LeBron James or some sort of super athlete and they're playing a game, let's just say LeBron James, playing a game of basketball with kindergartners, we would think LeBron James was the biggest jerk in the world if he showed his full basketball ability while playing kindergartners. Would we not? So he limits himself at times. He allows kindergartners to steal the ball from him. He allows kindergartners to make shots on him. He allows kindergartners to dunk it on him because he limits himself. We do the same thing. Tristan has limited himself at times. When I played golf with him a couple of years ago, we had a men's golf outing. Jason Morton and I—we were we were on a team and we were winning, weren't we? Amen, hallelujah. We were winning against Tristan and his grandpa. And then we come to the 11th hole, and Tristan pops in his superpower and atomic fireball jawbreaker. And there's a time when you hit a golf ball, you know it's a great hit because it just whistles through the air. And when he hit off that tee, I told Jason right then and there, we better hang on because he's coming. And I think he just had to limit himself for 10 holes just to boost the pastor's self-esteem and self-confidence. But we ended up losing because he started playing. We do this in our, t- in our own life where we limit ourselves. We do it with our kids and our grandkids. We don't show our full power. We don't show our full knowledge. We, we act like we don't know things at times. This is what Jesus does throughout his life. He controls his power. He shows meekness. And he limits himself. And So when he says, not even the sun knows, that's what he's saying. This is where I am right now, is I'm limiting myself to a knowledge I could have, but I'm not going to have at this moment. The point of this is not to know when Jesus will return, but to know he will return. That's what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. So he explains about what it's going to be like. And he begins by saying that it's going to be like this. People are going to be coming and going just as they do every day of their life. People are going to be going to work. People are going to be doing their normal habits throughout the day. People are going to be acting the way they normally act every single day. And that's when it's going to come. That's why when we try to mark the return of Christ like the year 2000 or 2020 or some other time, we can prepare ourselves. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You need to understand, when you get back into the routine of your life, when you're doing the things you do every single day, that's when I'm coming. Are you going to be ready when I show up in that moment? And he points it out by saying, there's two men in the field. One that's taken, one that's left. There's two, two women grinding at the mill. One that's taken, one that's left. And he does not make the distinction between the two men or the two women, just the fact that there is going to be a distinction made. And in chapter 25, when Jesus gives three parables, he lays out what the distinction will be. But until then, people are working and they're doing the things they're supposed to do, which is something we all have to be aware of. That's what we're called to do. We're continuing to live out this life Paul had to address the Thessalonian believers not to become idle in their living of life and doing the work because they knew Christ would return. His instruction to them is Christ is going to return, but until He does, we are to be working and waiting for that day. The statement is even capitalized more when Jesus brings up Noah in the days of Noah in verse 37 through 39. When you go back to that passage of Scripture in the book of Genesis, God comes to Noah... And tells Noah, this is what I'm going to do. This is the judgment that is going to be coming. So start building a big boat, buddy. And what does Noah do? He knows God's judgment's coming. He knows the end is near. Does he sit down and become idle? No, he starts working on the boat. And so because we know that Jesus Christ is going to be coming, we are to be working the means of salvation out of our life. We are to get to work for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. But it's going to be in the days of Noah. People are going to be coming, going, doing whatever they feel they want to do and want to do. And so we are to live differently. Christ's final instruction is to capture how to live in the midst of the waiting. We're to live like a homeowner who knows that a thief is coming. And so he's going to stay awake because he knows that thief is coming and that, that phrase to be broken into in verse 33 means to be dug into someone's trying to dig into your life but you know they're coming and what he's trying to capture here is we as God's people are to live expecting the unexpected though we expect it and that seems kind of weird but we are to live expecting the unexpected because we don't know when he will come but we expect he's going to come and so that is to be the mantra of our life and what is to drive us and what we do. And so Jesus lays out three parables in chapter 25, and we don't have time to dig deep into every single one of them. Let's just give a few cliff notes. The first parable deal, deals with ten virgins in verses 1 through 13. Five virgins were ready, five virgins were not. The overall theme is in waiting for Jesus' second coming, God's people are to be ready. The second parable begins in verse 14 and runs through verse 30 of chapter 25 and deals with talents. Three individuals who are given talents. Two of the individuals take the talents they've been given and they amplify them. They make them more. One individual hides them in fear of God and he bring, has judgment, a con, judgment upon him. To which we learn a th- overall theme is in waiting for Jesus' second coming, God's people are to be continuously ready. The final parable deals with the final judgment in the sheep and the goats and the separating of those two in which Jesus expands what it's going to look like when God comes and brings all people before Him and brings the judgment upon them. And the overall theme is that Jesus' second coming is that God's people are to be faithful. Each parable depicts that we are to be doing something in the midst of the life that we're living. We are to be different. We are to be an example to this world. And so to emphasize this, Jesus makes parallel statements in verse 42 and 44 of chapter 24 about staying awake and being ready. And so this is where it takes us into Luke chapter 2 this morning. If you want to make your way there, Luke chapter 2 verse 22. We are to expect the unexpected because we expect it. We are to be alert, and we are to be awake, and we are to be ready. But the reality is, if I confess my own sin, is I don't live with an expectation that Christ could return today. I don't live with the expectation that this place is not my home a lot of times in my life. I don't live with the alertness and the awareness that There are people that God has placed around me that if they don't know Christ, when He returns as I am expecting Him to, they will not go home with Him, but will be eternally separated from Him. So how do we live today and tomorrow and the rest of our days with an alertness, an awareness, an awakeness, an expectation of the future coming of Christ, the future Christmas? Well, in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, we meet two individuals who seem to be the only individuals who expected Christ to come the first time. Begin in verse 22. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, this is now Jesus, up to Jerusalem, they as Mary and Joseph, to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, In the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. As we come into the Gospel of Luke, uh, the opening, chapter 2, begins with the birth of Christ. And then Luke moves into the shepherds who came to see Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, you will not find the wise men ever showing up, at the manger scene, or at the end, or the the house room, the guest room, whatever. That doesn't happen except for in Matthew's Gospel. And Luke points out that that happens after this event in chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Because Luke is speaking about a time where Jesus would be eight days old. So here in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, we have eight-day-old baby Jesus. And they're taking baby Jesus to the temple, in Jerusalem, as according to the law of the Lord, to which he was to be offered to the Lord, and giving a sacrifice and an offering to the Lord to make him and set him aside as holy. Luke implies that Mary and Joseph gave a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons in verse 24, which lets us know the economic status of Mary and Joseph. They were living in poverty. This particular offering was known as the poor woman's offering in Leviticus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Now, how do we know this is? Before the wise men, because in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew points out that the wise men showed up when Jesus was a child. That's Matthew chapter two verse eleven. And though Jesus referred to a child here, it's because he's not no longer considered a baby. A child in Scripture, according to this Greek word, would be a toddler. We're also told in Matthew chapter two verse eleven that the wise men did not go to a manger; instead, they went to a house letting us know that Mary and Joseph had begun to build their life in the city of Bethlehem when the wise men showed up. It also lets us know why King Herod sent the order to have executed children up to the age of two in Bethlehem. So I know we love wise men, and I've said it before in the past, but wise men don't belong in the manger scene. Forgive us. They're on their way. In Luke chapter 2, verse 22, Mary and Joseph are being righteous. They're following the law of God. They're setting Jesus apart. And as they come to the temple, we're introduced to two individuals who were expecting the first coming of Christ. Simeon and Anna were the first two individuals to know Jesus was the Christ outside of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. Now, Mary and Joseph were told by angels, Joseph wrestled with it. Shepherds were told by angels. They went and saw it. Outside of that, oh, John the Baptist in his mother's womb knew, but the Spirit was upon him as well. They're the first people who see Jesus without any other thing except for the Holy Spirit coming upon them, knowing this is the Christ. We're told the event happens in Jerusalem, which means Mary and Joseph had to travel to Jerusalem. And it's at at the temple where these two individuals are waiting expecting and ready for the first coming of the Christ to be revealed. And they have this knowledge of Jesus' identity. And what we see in the first coming, in our preparation, and how to be prepared for the second coming from these individuals will change us. Simeon and Anna were ready when the rest of the world was not. And they were at the temple, the place where the presence of God was believed to dwell, yet they're the only ones who recognize the Christ in Jesus. Some believe that Simeon is the priest on duty, but Luke never identifies him in such a way. Whereas he identifies Anna as a prophetess. All we know about Simeon is that he's a man in Jerusalem. He was righteous, devout, and he's waiting for the consolation. That word consolation in verse 25 means comfort. He's waiting for the comfort of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. To Jesus to be the comfort, even though he's only eight-day-old baby Jesus, we mean that he is going to fulfill the prophecy according to Isaiah 66:13, 13, when he would bring comfort to all of God's people. The Holy Spirit being upon Simeon, as Luke brings out, is an Old Testament language in which it tells us that Simeon was playing the role as a prophet. So what we have here in Luke chapter 2, beginning verse 22, is we have two prophets meeting the prophet, Jesus Christ. And they become so aware of it. And what we learn, because they're in the temple and who they were, is that for us to be ready for the return of Christ, we must be in the presence of God and we must be connected to God. These two individuals were devoted to being where God was and where He was expected to be. They spent their days listening and waiting for God to do what only God could do. They were like us. They were not given a specific time to which the Christ would show up, but they waited in the presence of God, connecting their hearts to God in expectation that He would. They believed, no matter when it happened, that God was faithful to His Word, and He would do what He said He would do. In order for us to remain connected to God and be in the presence of God, then we must, we must, we must as God's people be in God's word and be a people of prayer. We must. Otherwise, we will lose sight of what is actually going on in the world around us. And we will lose the expectation that Christ could show up today. 2019 could be the last year on this earth. Christ could show up today, this afternoon. The Simeon and Anna, they weren't just waiting around the temple. Just as we aren't to just be waiting around in the world and waiting around in the church. We learn from them to be ready for the second coming of Christ. We must be expecting God. Do we live our lives in expectation that God wants to do something miraculous and wondrous through us? We are His ambassadors, Christ appealing through us. The Holy Spirit living inside of us. And God wants to use us for something beyond us. Are we expecting that? I love the psalmist's prayer, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Other versions of Psalm 5, 3 say, I direct my prayer to you, O Lord, and I wait in expectation." My confession is I tend to live my life as if this is where I belong. And this is the way things should be, and the way things are. When if I connect myself to the presence of God and the Word of God, I see this isn't even close to what God had in mind. And so I want to live in expectation. You turn to the book of Revelation, which I almost preached out of, but some people would have nightmares. Um, we find John receiving the revelation and declaration of Christ's second coming. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation and how John ends once he's given this revelation and the declaration of Christ's second coming, it ends with this, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. See, me and Anna were living a life in expectation that God was going to do something beyond what the world could provide. Do we live that way as God's people? That God is going to do something beyond what this world can give us. They weren't just in the temple; they weren't just looking around expectantly. We're told in verse twenty-five, Simeon was righteous and devout. We're told in verse thirty-seven that Anna did not depart from the temple; she worshipped with fasting and prayer day and night. These two were not idle, just as Jesus commands us in Matthew twenty-four not to become idle. But these two were continually seeking after God. So that's what we have to do: is we wait for Christ's return. We must be living a life that is continually seeking after Him. Seeking after Him in His Word. Seeking after Him in His creation. Seeking after Him with God's people in fellowship. For Simeon to be righteous and devout, he had to be seeking after God through the Word of God, which for Simeon was the Old Testament. For Anna to be worshiping through fasting and prayer, meant she was seeking after God to do something miraculous in her life, which this world could not provide. They were living in the midst of the promises that come out of the book of Jeremiah. Where the Lord says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. Isn't that what we want? To be found by God and to be gathered by God away from all this mess. God promises in the Word in Proverbs eight seventeen: those who seek me diligently find me. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, there's a promise that if we seek after God with all of our heart and with all of our soul, guess what? We will find God. Perhaps we come to this time of year just so frustrated and so worn out because we've been seeking after the wrong things. But to seek after God will give us our only fulfillment. When Simeon and Anna sought after God, they met God in the flesh. And their spirits, despite being under the same bondage as their fellow Jews under the Roman Empire, their spirits were lifted. Their circumstances did not control their emotional, spiritual response. Which leads to the next thing we see with them. To be ready for the coming of Christ, we must be worshiping God. They weren't just looking around. They were worshiping God. They weren't worshiping an idea of God. They weren't even worshiping the place of God, which the disciples were in Matthew 24. Look at all these buildings. They were worshiping God because they knew God had been faithful in their past, and so God will continue to be faithful in their present and into their future. And here's the thing. They were in the midst of the wait. And isn't that the hardest place to worship God when you're in the midst of the wait? waiting for God to do something, waiting for God to show up, waiting for God to do something specific in your life, and you're sitting there waiting. What we learn from scriptures is waiting on God can hinder our worship, but it shouldn't. It should heighten it. Because we know God is faithful. We know God is true to His word. We know God is working all things out for His good we may not see it, we may not feel it, we may not be experiencing it within the wait, but we cannot allow the weight of the wait to hinder our worship. We must continue to worship. So God tells us throughout Scripture, Psalm 56.10, Be still and know that what? I am God. He says, And those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like wings, like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. Well, there's a nice verse if you're going to start exercising in 2020. You shall run and not be weary if you're waiting for the Lord. That'd be nice. They shall walk and not be faint. Reality is we're all in a period of waiting on God. Waiting on God to fix this mess that we live in. You may be waiting on God right now to do something very specific in your life. Fix a problem, to heal someone. Do not let the wait hinder your worship. He is worthy. He is faithful. Simeon and Anna had been waiting and waiting. And then they worshiped God because God showed up according to His word. Verse 29 of chapter 2. It wasn't according to Simeon's hopes. It wasn't according to Simeon's dreams or Simeon's timeline or Simeon's plans. It was according to God's faithful and true word. The final thing we see is, to be ready for the coming of Christ, we must be living for God. Simeon and weren't living for the world, they weren't living for the people around them, they weren't living for the temple, they were living for God. In Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus gives the three parables, it captures this truth, that people living for God will be ready for God. And to be ready for Christ's second coming, then we have to be living for God in this moment, not the idea of God, not even a thought of even understanding God more. Simeon understood that the only peace he could have in this life is when he knew God and God would be the source of this peace. And so to live for God, we have to understand that there's nothing in this world that we can find peace in. We can only find peace through God. And to live for God, I understand that I can do nothing in my life to deserve God in my life. Ken Hughes writes that our soul will only find complete rest when it is Jesus Christ plus Nothing. One of his books, I don't know which one it is, he's got three or four out now, um, Francis Chan tells the story of when he took his grandma to see a play. And it was a gift to her. He wanted to do something for her, but she was kind of living very you know, humbly and didn't want him to do anything, spend any money on her. But he took her to this play, and I don't remember what the play was, but they're sitting there and they're watching it. In the midst of the play, he noticed that his grandma is, is, is becoming very emotional, just shedding tears. And so as they are leaving, he he asked her, what part of the play led to such emotion? What what part of the play really grabbed your heart in such a way? And her response to him is, it had nothing to do with the play. The play was great. It It was wonderful. The thought just overwhelmed my mind that this is not the place I want to be when Jesus Christ returns. That's a heart living for Christ. To want to be in the right place and doing the right thing for the kingdom of God when He returns so that He is glorified before He comes and ultimately when He comes. As God's people, will we be willing to make the commitment for 2020 that we are going to live in an expectation of Christ's return? We're going to allow that? To change our actions and our words and the way we treat people and the things we talk about. Because we want people to know He's coming and He's coming soon. That's the future Christmas. You may be here today and need to know the reason for His first coming. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 30, Simeon makes this declaration. For my eyes have seen your salvation looking at eight-day baby Jesus eight-day baby Jesus he says my eyes have seen your salvation Simeon understood what Jesus came to do there are several words in the Bible that refer to salvation deliverance redemption rescue liberation freedom life justification and resurrection This is what the salvation of Christ brings us. To deliver us from our sins. To pay the price for our sins on the cross, which is what redemption means. To rescue us from the cost of our sin, which separates us from a loving God in His presence. To liberate us from the ways of this world. To give us freedom in life as we live in this world. To justify us before a holy God, which means as if I never sinned before in the first place, because my faith is in Christ alone. And to promise us our own resurrection into our heavenly home. All of these promises can only be found through Jesus Christ. You can't be good enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't sing enough. You can't give enough money. It is only through a faith in Jesus Christ. And this is why he came as a baby to be born at Christmas. He came to live a perfect life you and I couldn't. To die on a cross for our sins. To be put in a tomb and rise again. That when we place our faith and our trust in Him and His work, we might be saved. You may be here this morning, and this is the gift you need to accept. The Bible says when we admit to God that we are sinners, meaning there are things in our life we do that we know we shouldn't do, but we continue to wrestle in doing them. We know they're wrong. We don't talk about them openly as much. That's sin. And sin keeps us from the presence of God and the love of God, allowing us to to see God and hear God and experience God. The Bible says, When I believe that God loves me so much He sent His only Son to die for my sin, and He did, but He rose again that I might be forgiven, and I place my faith in Jesus' work, that I believe that He is the Son of God who rose from the grave, that I could be completely forgiven. The Bible says, I will be saved when I confess that with my mouth. Confession means a public declaration. Maybe you're here this morning and that's exactly where you are. You need to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. You haven't accepted His first coming, so you're definitely not ready for His second. Maybe you're here today and you're like me as I was struggling this week with this passage and and this sermon. And coming to you understanding that God is convicting my heart, I have not been living with a sense of expectation for Christ to return today. And I need to repent. We're going to come to the time of invitation. i Jackson to come up and lead us in the song. If you need to come and pray, if you need to say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved, I'm going to invite you to come down. If you need to come and kneel before the Father, maybe as God's people, we just need to make it our prayer for this church that we are a church that's living in expectation that Christ could come back today. What would that change about what we're doing? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your kindness. I thank you for your promises, Lord. Lord, give me a heart of expectation. Give me a heart believing that it could be today. Father, let your light shine out of my life. Let me be the salt of this world that I need to be. Let me be your ambassador that I need to be. Let me go into all the nations. Father, I pray that for this church, this is your bride. Father, we be a people of expectation not only that you could return today, but Lord, you want to do a great mighty work in our lives today. Forgive us, Lord, if we've become spiritually dull and blind and hard-hearted. Lord, well, thank you. You won't let us go. Come this time of invitation, Lord, we want to be not just hearers of your word, but doers. So let us respond to what you've laid upon our heart. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.